0: Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Deputy Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. This is Part 3 of our MCU Retrospective. In the lead-up to Avengers Endgame, we have been talking about all of the preceding Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And in this episode, we will be discussing Ant-Man, Captain America Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and Spider-Man Homecoming. So let's dive in with Ant-Man, which had a hilariously troubled production. <laughs> of which we covered all of it. <laughs> we covered extensively. Now, the thing about Ant-Man is that Edgar Wright was pretty much at work in the MCU before the MCU was a thing. Like, he had an idea for Ant-Man, and he and Joe Cornish, the director, writer-director of Attack the Block and The Kid Who Would Be King... Uh, they developed this idea, they put it all together. This was really
1: their baby and their passion project uh, for a while. And to the point that they were at, or Edgar was at Comic-Con with John Favreau the very first year um, that Marvel Studios was like, yeah, we're making our own movies. So they right. were like, "John Favreau is doing Iron Man and Edgar Wright is going to do an Ant-Man movie. Exactly. And
0: Edgar Wright really guided this thing. I mean, it it's... It, All the way right up until shooting. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I mean, the cast is his, the idea, like the, the big set pieces are his, like this is the, even the notion that the protagonist should be Scott Lang instead of Hank Pym. Uh, a lot of people when Ant-Man was in early development, like, oh, well, of course, Hank Pym, the first Ant-Man, he'll be Ant-Man. That's, that's who it's going to be. And then like, but what will they do about Hank Pym beating his wife in the comics? And it's like, they're not going to include that. <laughs> they're not going to include that horrible detail. <laughs> um, but it, the, but Edgar's like, no, I wanted Scott Lang. I wanted to be more of a heist. And he had a very clear vision for it. But as they were getting up to filming, it became clear that what Edgar Wright wanted and what Marvel wanted were no longer the same thing.
1: Well, and even before that, though, the production kept getting pushed back. Right. That's also true. Yes. Yeah. Like, and I wasn't aware, but Edgar Wright actually originated Ant-Man back in 2003, like for a different studio. He Mm -hmm. and Joe Cornish wanted to make it. And then when it got set up at Marvel... They hired them in uh, 2006, I believe, uh, to write and, and direct it and produce it, or whatever. But as it was being developed, you know, obviously he was doing other films uh, like uh, Hot Fuzz and uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Um, and I think like they were supposed to shoot in the UK, and then there weren't enough stages, so that got pushed back.
0: Yeah, and, and then they then, were going to shoot. Then they were going to shoot in Atlanta.
1: Yeah, and then. Um, so Eric Fellner, who's the head of working title, um, had been producing Edgar's movie since Shaun of the Dead, and Edgar had promised that he would do a Three Cornettos trilogy with with Eric Fellner. He would do three uh, of those uh, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost movies. And Eric Fellner was diagnosed with cancer. And so Edgar Wright asked Marvel – like it was – Ant-Man was ready to go. And he asked them, please, can you let me go make the world's end first? And Marvel said, yes, absolutely. So he left to do that to fulfill his obligation to his friend. And uh, thankfully, Eric Fellner did not die. He's still around. Um, And then when it came time to come back around to Marvel – and I think this may have hurt Edgar – is that uh, Marvel had gotten a lot bigger. Like the the Avengers had happened – the, the interconnectedness of everything was all important at this point.
0: Well, yeah, and not just the interconnectedness, but the visual template. Like Marvel yeah. had different directors, but they were sort of like, we want to use the same cinematographers. We want to use the same costume designers. We want to keep – we have our same crew of people, and we want to keep using them. And we also have the story group that's overseeing all these decisions that hadn't broken up yet. And so it's a lot harder to be like, I'm Edgar Wright, and I'm an auteur filmmaker, and I have a very clear idea for what my Ant-Man movie should be. And then Marvel's like, okay, that's great, but could you just give it to our story group and let, yeah. and let them decide what, what things are going to be things?
1: Yeah. So it, Well, it, and first, didn't they uh, disagree on casting, right? There was disagreement over
0: casting. Um, the way I heard it is that they're basically – Basically, Marvel wanted Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was sort of riding the hot hand uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, they early wanted 2010s. early 2010s. I'm sorry, early 2010s. And Get your
1: decades, right, Matt?
0: It's Come. all blurs together. You, <laughs> you can't tell me the 90s were 20 years ago. I, I won't hear it.
1: <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense.
0: Right. Uh, but it was between Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who the studio wanted, and uh, Paul Rudd, who Edgar Wright wanted. And Edgar Wright eventually, you know, he got Paul Rudd. And I think that was the better. I mean, no, no, I think Joseph Gordon Levitt's a really good actor, but I think Paul Rudd is a more distinctive actor. Yeah. And I think he brings something to the table that no one else does in these movies. Um, and I think that was the smart casting move. And then from there, you know, they ca- he casted it out like, you know, Michael Douglas signed on to play Hank Pym and Evangeline Lilly signed up. Like that cast was pretty much gathered under Edgar Wright.
1: Mm hmm. Michael Pena, Corey Stoll, um, and then a couple who left after Aguirre left, which was Patrick Wilson and uh, Matt Gerald. Yes.
0: So it it, it gets to be, golly, I think it was, I want to say like May 2014 or so. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly when it happened. I remember because I was on a I was on I was on the Lone Survivor like Blu-ray junket, <laughs> and so like I was in Washington D.C. and I'm like whoa like I got that alert like it blows up on Twitter that Edgar Wright's leaving Ant-Man and we were all just like like I was with a bunch of other film writers and we're, like we were just like floored by it yeah and then it became a scramble to be like well who is going to direct it now and like Marvel like like ran through a bunch of people to try to find someone to not only replace Wright but also do a new pass on the script
1: yeah initially well so and then in the days after Edgar Wright left we kind of learned what happened um he and Cornish had had written multiple drafts for Marvel uh and Marvel kept coming back and saying needs more work needs more work uh need to do more things uh and eventually it got to the point that Marvel asked Edgar if they could let a couple other writers take a pass at the script um, and Marvel at this time, and maybe they still do had some like in-house writers who would do oh, kind they still, of,
0: they, yeah, they totally have their own in-house writers.
1: Yeah. So they have like onset writers, like writers who will be on set, who can help out um, obviously not on something like guardians of the galaxy, which is very much James Gunn's film. Um, but maybe on something like Dr. Strange or something. Right. But even a, those in-house
0: writers, like Nicole Perlman was one of those in-house writers who started. Yeah. Guardians of the yeah. galaxy. Like they have those people like kind of formulating ideas and working all the time.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, Marvel said, can we let these guys take a crack at the script? And Edgar uh, was kind of like, I guess, uh, but wasn't too happy about it. And then as soon as that script came back is when he uh, had a sit-down meeting with Kevin Feige and was like, I'm leaving this movie. I'm not directing the script. Um, and he ultimately said – like, he, his statement, he said, was I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. And – Kevin Feige said something to the effect of, uh, you know, uh, it got to the point where, um, you know, we were talking and it was like, oh, you're really not going to address that note. And the other person would say, oh, you're really going to keep giving me that note. Um, They were kind of at loggerheads. And Edgar Wright, obviously, if you look at his films, is kind of a singular filmmaker. Um, He's someone who kind of knows exactly what he wants to do um reportedly another point of contention was that you know Edgar Wright doesn't shoot coverage uh coverage is when you shoot scenes from a bunch of different angles so you have some choices in the editing room um but much like Steven Spielberg uh Edgar Wright kind of edits in camera and that his shots are kind of all mapped out beforehand so he knows exactly what shot he wants when and where uh and Marvel likes a lot of coverage because they like to change things in the edit room um and they like to change things in post-production when they do reshoots uh so that was reportedly another another piece of contention there and Edgar just was like, "See ya, I'm not doing this anymore,
0: and I think to me that's a huge turning point in Marvel's history because it says that um you there are like Marvel will work with directors who can bend their formula, but no one gets to break it. yeah, so no one gets to be bigger than the Marvel
1: Cinematic Universe, no one gets especially to... after Iron Man Three. <laughs>
0: Right. (laughs) Which is still very much, though, in the Marvel universe. Like, visually, it's still, like, it's still very much in line. Like, he didn't, like, Edgar Wright, if Edgar Wright had made Ant-Man, that film would have been unmistakably Edgar Wright. The way he cuts, the way he transitions, the way he, you know, his comic timing. Like, it's very hard to imagine a film without his personality in
1: it. Um, and that's you a, and I saw the test reel footage that he shot, right, at Comic Con. Yes, we did with the with the size foo. Yes, so we were uh, part of a very limited uh, number of audiences saw any footage that Edgar Wright ever shot of Ant Man. But he shot a test reel of uh, it was like a uh, like a security hallway. It looked like Langley from Mission Impossible, uh, and Edgar Wright running at a guy with a gun. But he was you know sizing down, jumping Ant-Man up. Ant Man running
0: them. down a guy a gun with a gun.
1: Oh, who did I say? You said
0: Edgar Wright running at a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: maybe. Um, but that would be something. Uh, and it was really cool. Um, but it very much like, uh, you know, that test reel. Um, uh, the finished film is very much like that.
0: Yeah, because the, the other thing about Marvel movies I have to keep in mind is that their set pieces are kind of determined far in advance because they take longer to complete. So a way a Marvel movie tends to be constructed is that it'll have like the set pieces in place. Like, okay, so this set piece has to happen here. This set piece happens here. This set piece happens here. And like they pre-visit out and then they start working on it. And then sort of the rest of the story kind of falls in around it. Mm-hmm. Um so when you watch Ant-Man, it's like, oh, I can kind of see the Edgar Wright of, like, a Thomas the Tank engine getting really big and bursting through someone's house.
1: Yeah, which Joe Cornish has confirmed that that set piece was entirely Edgar. Like, that was their idea. Right. To have that whole set piece with the train and stuff. Um, And I believe, so immediately in the wake of Edgar Wright's exit, like, they were months away from shooting, and they really wanted to keep that because they needed to keep their release date. So they were scrambling. I know Adam McKay was like in talks to direct, and then literally the next day, like pulled out and was like, "No, nah, out of out of respect for my friends' friendship with Edgar Wright, I'm not going to direct it, but I will rewrite it." So, <laughs> <laughs> me and Paul Rudd will rewrite it. <laughs> yeah. So he and Paul Rudd went to work um, addressing uh, Marvel script notes and writing it together, and then ultimately the two in-house writers, um, and I forget their names, um, got credited on the film. I believe it's. Uh, Oh, no, they didn't get credited on the film. But it was reported that they were handling um, a lot of scripting duties. But ultimately, the screenplay by credits are Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, Adam McKay, and Paul Rudd, with a story by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish. Um, And Adam McKay and Paul Rudd added the whole Falcon sequence. That action sequence was not in Edgar Wright and uh, Joe Cornish's script.
0: Yeah. And boy, doesn't that feel a little shoehorned in. <laughs> hey, look, this one piece that we didn't have is needed. Where is it? It's at Avengers Compound. Oh, I guess we gotta go there. Well, looky there. It's it's another Avenger that can tie <laughs> into future movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, eventually they settle on um Peyton Reed. Peyton Reed, the director of Bring It On uh and Yes Man. And the funny thing about Peyton Reed is like I think if if from the beginning, if there had been no Edgar Wright of it all, and if they had just started out being like, "Here's Peyton Reed; he's going to make an Ant Man movie," and I'm like, "Oh, I think we'd all be kind of on board with that because his movies are genuinely enjoy- are ge- are generally enjoyable. Um, he makes nice, fun, lighthearted films, and Ant Man isn't like a heavy character, uh, depending on which direction you go with him. Certainly, in a Scott Lang, I you know I'm going to make a heist film, and so you know he steps into a, I think Payne re stepped into a rough situation where he didn't have, he didn't get to have any say over the cast. A lot of the work had been done before he got there. So he's just trying to bring it home,
1: you know, and get it from a to B. Um, and I do remember Evangeline Lilly saying, and I think it was an interview with Steve, uh, our um, you know Frosty as people know him, uh, that when Edgar Wright left, she had not finalized her contract yet. So she said she was in a cushy position that she could wait and see what who the new director was going to be and what the script was going to be, and then she could back out if she wanted to, because she had not officially signed the papers to be in the movie. Whereas Rudd was just pretty much locked and loaded, so right. he was kind of kind of stuck there.
0: Yeah. I, I just feel like, so you get rate read to direct and I think the, the end result is serviceable. <laughs> it's like, <that's, laughs> it's a, man is a weird film. It's a film. I like, it's a film that I don't really think about that much or like, it, it's kind of forgettable, but it's also kind of a film like if you would just want it on in the background or, you know, see it on TNT, I'd be like, oh, this is inoffensive and Low and, and makes very little demand of me as an audience member. <laughs> yes, I mean, Paul Rudd's charm goes a long
1: way. That's the thing, uh, Paul Rudd's very charming. Uh, yeah. Michael Pena is very charming. Uh, all, it, of, all of these casting decisions that Edgar Wright made ended up saving the movie, kind of.
0: Yeah, I mean, as from a plot perspective, it's kind of f- flat, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it, it's a heist, it's like Baby's first heist film. Um, you know, audiences have seen far better in the heist genre, and this is just very by-the-numbers um, to the point where it kind of lacks a personality. And it's fine. Like, I don't think – like, Ant-Man I don't think is bad. Like, it does flow from A to B to C. Um, it's just – it's very standard, and it's kind of – given all of its production troubles, you're a little amazed that it even works at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, my feeling at the time was I was really angry that Edgar Wright left. Um, And the thing about Edgar Wright's movies, if you look at them, like, even from a plot perspective, you look at Shaun of the Dead, and it's like, uh, you know, a slacker, lazy 30 year old um, drags his girlfriend and friends to a pub during a zombie invasion. And that directed by, you know, Michael Bay is a completely different movie or directed by kind of anyone else. You really need every single piece in place to make it work, which is why Edgar Wright doesn't shoot coverage like everything, because there's there's mirroring in the shots that happen uh, in the beginning of his films and in the ends of his films. They kind of mirror each other. Well,
0: He's a master of setup and payoff.
1: Yeah, so exactly.
0: Everything that Edgar Wright lays out is usually going to is going to get paid off later in the film. It's all very specific. I mean, you can look at The World's End, and The get the World's End is like, these friends get together and go on a pub crawl, but the town is now robots. Um, but there's so much more going on than that, and but the film has to be done specifically or else it's a different beast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even if Edgar—and I think Edgar Wright made the right call in leaving, because if he had stayed and if he had gone with this script that had been revised by Marvel, you know, like I said, if you have one scene out of place, that whole thing doesn't really— work it doesn't match up the way that you know his movies run like a swiss watch
0: right and it and it's a bummer that marvel didn't trust edgar wright to like deliver the film that needed to be delivered um but at the same time marvel's like our brand is big enough that we don't need edgar wright and that's a that's the thing when you get that big they honestly don't need any filmmaker and it's nice when they like reach out to like a a James Gunn or a a Ryan Coogler and you get something really special. But at the same time, Marvel is still a studio that will also reach out to, you know... Who, who's bland <laughs> <laughs> i don't want Wiseman. A len Wiseman. no they're not going to reach out to fucking len Wiseman or someone yeah. someone that's a little more well
1: uh, well here's the list of filmmakers that were on the shortlist to direct uh ant-man after egg Wright left mm-hmm. uh reuben fleischer who did yep. zombie land and then nothing else of consequence uh ross and marshall thurber who is fine he did dodgeball um and skyscraper or whatever he did skyscraper uh, yeah Nicholas Stoller, who would have been an interesting story, choice. I mean, he did Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Five-Year Engagement, uh, movies like that. Michael Dow, who did Goon, and David Wayne, who did you know, Wet Hot American Summer and uh, um, Role Models, stuff like that. So guys who are like funny but also malleable. Right. They're not going to get – again, they're not going to get someone like Ryan Coop, or, uh Peyton
0: Reed is very much in the mold of those other guys.
1: Yes, yeah. They're not going to bring in someone like Edgar Wright. Like, you're not going to get Quentin Tarantino to come in and be like, hey, guys, I'll play ball. Yeah,
0: exactly. What do you need from me? No no auteurs here. And so what you get is a perfectly fine Ant-Man movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. which It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's, you know, uh, the villain's super forgettable, and uh, the saifu stuff works. Michael Peña's charming. Paul Rudd's really fun. But uh, it's really forgettable. And i got to say, I mean, I guess... We'll talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp when we get to that. That's in the next podcast. That's in the next episode. Yes. Stay tuned.
0: Uh, So then Ant-Man is the conclusion of (laughs) Phase 2. It was meant to be the start of Phase 3, and they're like, we're not starting Phase 3 on fucking (laughs) Ant-Man.
1: Which this – I mean, and that notion has kind of gone away. But I remember back then it was a very big deal that the Marvel movies were set up in phases, like Phase 1 – began with Iron Man and ended with the Avengers. And, you know, Phase 2 started with Iron Man 3 and ended with Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, Or, I guess, ended with Ant-Man. Yeah. uh, But now, like, the phases aren't that much. Well, they're just too many movies to keep up with phases, you know? Yeah. They're they're no longer following, like, a four movies and then an Avenger movie track. Right, because they're just cranking
0: out too many movies.
1: Yeah, they're doing three movies a year, which is insane.
0: Yeah. So... Next comes Captain America Civil War, which is a film that I liked when I saw it, and every time I rewatch it, I like it less.
1: Did you hear that, Matt? Did you hear all the people turning this podcast off now?
0: Oh, that Civil War isn't amazing? <laughs> I'm sorry. Here's the here's issue. The, okay, so the weird thing about Civil War is that, first off, I get that it's from one of the more popular comic runs in recent history, the, which, again, was also um Tony Stark versus Captain America and the idea is that there needs to be a, a registration act and Iron Man is like we have to have the superhero registration and Captain America is suddenly a libertarian now and he's like we don't need laws <laughs> if everyone is just good things will be good and I'm like yeah but that's not how the world works <laughs> brosif fucking boy scout cuck <laughs> whoa <laughs> Um. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so the idea behind Civil War is to sort of take that and reframe it to create a falling out between um, Iron Man and Captain America and using sort of um, the Winter Soldier as kind of a wedge character there. And it's a film that you sort of see the limitations of the Russos on display. Like, I think the Russos are pretty good with juggling characters, Um, but when it comes to like, if they don't have like Stileski and, um, choreographing their action, it comes out pretty flat. Visually. The film is nothing nice to look at. It looks like a gray parking lot. (laughs) Um, it's just, and then the, the, the central problem is that both your main characters, Captain America and Iron Man are in this weird place where Iron Man, actually his story, he makes more sense because Throughout the movies, Tony Stark is like, I fucked up, I'm going to impose more control, and that ends up creating a larger fuck up. And so, that actually, to me, Tony's arc makes a lot of sense. He's in the wrong, but it makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, with Captain America, who is a character I've really grown to love over the course of the MCU, I feel like they lost track of that character here. Uh, I thought in Winter Soldier, they really found a smart way to sort of bring him into into the present age. But then by trying to say, like, Captain America, he's like, what if I don't want to obey the law? <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a weird thing. and It's then super weird. It's super weird. And at the end of the day, there, there can't really be... S- the stakes in this movie are technically emotional, but it's a lot of... It's a movie's like two and a half hours. And let's be honest, like, yeah, the airport battle is fun to watch, but it has no stakes. Because none of these characters really want to hurt each other. You know, so it's just like smashing action figures together. It doesn't really have weight. It certainly, I think, the the fallout between Cap and Iron Man has weight because we've invested in those characters. And this came out the same year as Batman v Superman, and there were a lot of comparisons between the two movies. And a lot of people pointed to the fact that, like, when Captain America and Iron Man fight, that means more because those two characters know each other and they yeah. have a they have a difference over something real rather than, you know, your mother's name is also Martha.
1: Yeah, I mean it helps that Captain America's mom's name is uh Sharon and and Tony's mom's name is uh Henrietta. So they're different, so it's fine. It's all good.
0: Is that, is that true? No. I, <laughs> Completely made up. I would love it if you had that deep, well, someone's going to like write us. Actually, their names are, yeah, no one cares. Sharon America. Sharon America. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, the thing about, so the thing about Civil War is that it's, you know, it it's not, again, it's not a film I I dislike, but it's a film that feels very shaggy. Um, it's trying to do a lot of heavy lifting. It's like, oh, now here's also Black Panther. And here's, you know, this, you know, Baron Zemo is, uh, you know, trying to, you know, wrestle all these pieces into play. And when you hear the, the, the Russos, they say, say things like, it's like seven. You're like, have you seen seven? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like seven and Zodiac. Basically. This is our Fincher movie.
0: Yeah, Like, uh, I can name drop things, too, but that doesn't make it so. No. Just say, like, we made another
1: superhero movie, and that's okay. It's okay! Well, and I think that's kind of... Uh, I mean, clearly I'm in the minority, but I'm not a super huge fan of the Russo brothers' um, superhero movies because they just feel like imitations. They kind of feel like TV movies. Like, it feels like a movie that's trying to be a grown-up movie, but it's not really a grown-up movie. Um, if that well, makes it, any sense. it makes
0: sense. No, it makes sense because... When we're talking about, like, what is a grown-up movie, a grown-up movie challenges its audience, and it makes them feel uncomfortable, and it makes them reconsider things. So if you want to make Three Days of the Condor, that's a grown-up movie because it, like, makes you feel distrustful of your government, and it makes you wonder, like, if the people in charge have your best interests at heart. And Winter Soldier doesn't do that. Winter Soldier yeah. is Captain America saves the day and brings down the tankers, you know, brings down the helicarriers. Yeah. And Civil War, like, it doesn't, like, at the end, you know, you can be like, you know, it really fractures, you know, this relationship between Tony and, and, and Steve. But at the end of the film, he sends him a cell phone and a message being like, hey, bro, I'll still be there for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think well and maybe like, this is why it can't hit as hard as like for for people that aspire to make grown-up movies, this can't hit as hard as it wants to, which makes me very curious to see what their next movie Cherry turns out to be because that is about a a war vet dealing with PTSD and drug addiction. So it doesn't get more grown up than that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I just, and maybe this is why their movies really appeal to a large swath of the fan base. For me personally, the comic booky stuff is not necessarily my favorite aspect of these movies. I'm always looking for something more. Um, so like, that's kind of why I like Iron Man three so much. Cause it doesn't necessarily care about the comics or even really about Iron Man. It's a, it's a story about Tony Stark. Um, and it has a lot of fun along the way. Whereas I feel like the Russo's, like maybe they want to make a seven flavored movie, but they are ultimately huge fans of the comic books and they want to make a superhero movie. And it's more about like you know, like the Winter Soldier is really strongly about uh Cap and Bucky. And like I personally don't really care about Cap and Bucky that much. I think Bucky is boring. Um and now you can send your hate mail to me uh online. But uh so like that, I mean that aspect. Unless you're giving me something more, if I don't know if that makes any sense. But there, are, to me, Civil War. Well, Wars no, there's movie, nothing. There's nothing daring in it that will stick with you. There just isn't. Yeah.
0: And like even, you know, and we'll get to Infinity War, but everything that's quote unquote daring in their movies comes with an asterisk. So in Winter Soldier, it's like it's about the government and oh, you know, what do we trade in for security? And it's like, yeah, but then Captain America saves the day. That's the asterisk. He yeah. saves the day, and he saves his friend, and his friend saves him. And Captain and yeah, she, and Shield, the big sinister government agency, is dissolved, and everything is brought down to the open. You get a happy ending, and you know the you know with a uh, Civil War. Oh, Iron Man and Cap are fighting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Captain America is like, I'll be there for you. <laughs> and he rescues his, and oh yeah, his friends go to jail, but then he breaks them out of jail. So it, yeah. like, there's nothing in it to bum you out. And look, I'm not saying like the, the, not the, the, uh, the Russos have to make bummer movies, but that there's a line between, I'm going to make a film with a point of view that you may or may not like, and trying to do something that appeals to everyone. And if you want to make, populous entertainment that appeals to a lot of people, that's fine. Just that's what you're doing. But that's what you're doing. Like you're not, you're not like rock. I I don't look to the Russos to rock the boat.
1: Yeah, I do. I do appreciate the fact that, I mean, at least emotionally it uh, changes things up. I mean, there was, there's very clearly been tension between Tony and Cap since they met in the Avengers Uh, and they finally kind of break that, that stick. In Civil War, and it sets up an interesting dynamic for Infinity War and Endgame, but we ad- haven't really seen it beyond Tony just refusing to call um, Captain America back.
0: The world <laughs> could literally be ending, and he's like, I'm not calling that guy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, I'm too busy ghosting him. I don't want to—he has to call first. I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not gonna do it. He has to call first. Um there were, I mean, there's like huge swaths of Civil War that I enjoy. There there are parts of that movie that I think are really compelling and really interesting. Um, some of the more dramatic scenes and even the, the airport battle, I think, is a lot of fun. It has some really fun beats in it. I mean, clearly adding Spider-Man to the mix was really joyous. And then, uh, you know, Ant-Man turning into Giant-Man is really fun. Um, so th- those parts were like enjoyable in the moment. But I do wonder and I haven't revisited it in a while, but in hindsight, like now that we know Peter Parker more, was it just kind of the newness of getting to see Spider-Man that that was cool or does it still work in the film? And now that we've seen Ant-Man do Giant-Man in Ant-Man and the Wasp, is that does that still pay off Um, or is it more just about the surprise?
0: Yeah, it's a film that feels like it's throwing a lot at the wall to see what sticks like it's you. They want to they want to try to hit the war in civil war, but it's really captain America, civil skirmish. Um, you know, again, cause the characters aren't really trying to hurt each other that much.
1: And, well, and, and speaking of asterisks like, we can talk about like the one thing that did bum me out about the movie was that, Oh shit. Like uh war machine is paralyzed and now he's walking again.
0: <laughs> so he's like, worried. He, he's paralyzed, yeah. but with special machines, he can basically walk.
1: Yeah. He's fine. He's, he's fine. fine. <laughs> Which, I, again, kind of retroactively uh, takes a lot of the air out of that balloon.
0: Right. That's the thing. If you're going to make the punt, throw the punch, throw the punch. And the thing is, is the reason to make a movie, a lot of movies that pull their punches. That, and I'll, I'll say it right now, Endgame is going to be a pulled punch. That's like a really heavy movie is, oh, shit, half the world is dead and you just have to live with it. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, that's the not, leftovers. That's the leftovers. And that's like, that'll stick with you. Okay, Endgame is about how do you not have to live with the hard things in life? And look, that's why I think the escapism of the movies provides that. I could be wrong on Endgame. I don't think I am. But <laughs> I I just feel like I'm I'm looking at Endgame and I see a giant undo button. That's all I see when I look at that movie. And I'm yeah. excited to see it, but it looks like a giant undo button. I'm
1: very curious about it. Um how do you feel about Zemo?
0: I like Zemo um, yeah. because is I think right? I think Daniel Bruhl. Like, first off, a lot of Marvel villains suck. Yes. So I think with, I think the smartest thing they did with Zemo is to give him a reason that actually is sympathetic. Because yeah, well, his machinations are overly convoluted. At least he's not like, I'm going to destroy the Avengers because they're the Avengers and the Avengers can't be in our world. He's like, no, my family's dead and they didn't save them and I wanted to hurt them like they hurt me. And I'm like, actually, you know what? That's understandable.
1: And I see where you're coming from. (laughs) <laughs> i did i do like the fact that uh i mean we talked about age of ultron in the last podcast and how hard of a movie it was for joss whedon um and speaking of ant-man when Eggarite left joss whedon posted a photo on twitter of him holding up a cornetto kind of in solidarity um but i like the fact that like whedon made age of ultron and it was really interesting and weird and whatever and like all of the team up movies after that have been about like what terrible destruction you have done during that sokovia thing <laughs> Like, all of the terrible things you guys did in Sokovia and Age of Ultron.
0: Yeah, the Sokovia fallout.
1: Yeah, um, that thing that Joss Whedon did. Now we're going to like play it off as like, oh, it was all very bad. It's kind of bad. I mean, I just thought it was kind of funny that, like, you know, that movie ends and it doesn't necessarily address it. It doesn't end with them being like, "Man, so many people got hurt because of what we did." Um, unless I'm remembering wrong.
0: No, in fact, in 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 uh in Age of Ultron, they make a point like we're not going to let one person die. Yeah. <laughs> <And> it turns <laughs> and, out a lot of people
1: died. Turns out a lot of people died. Um, I, I mean one one last curious thing just about the development of Civil War is this was. So this was the first movie this was around the time that Kevin Feige was getting out from Ike Perlmutter's thumb. Um Ike Perlmutter is the CEO of Marvel Entertainment. He's a terrible man. Um, makes terrible decisions. He was insisting on all these terrible things uh like no female action figures because girls won't buy toys. Uh you know, he uh and they also instilled this thing called the Marvel Story Group, which gave notes on every single script on every single movie. Uh and I can't remember the people that were on it. I think like John
0: Romita Jr. Marvel Comics was on it. Yeah. Some stuff, people like that.
1: So there would be like a notation process that you would have to go through. And Civil War, I think, had to go through this. But I think it was during the development of Civil War, or maybe during filming, that Kevin Feige went straight to Alan Horn at Disney and said, I don't want to report to Ike Perlmutter anymore. I want to report to you. Get me out. And Alan Horn was like, surely. And so Marvel Studios, which is the film Uh, studio of Marvel got moved. It got redistributed to where Kevin Feige directly reports to Alan Horn and does not have to report to Ike Perlmutter at all anymore. Ike Perlmutter still oversees merchandising and Marvel TV, which is run by Jeff Loeb, um, which is all those Netflix shows and uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Excuse me, all those canceled Netflix shows. (laughs) All those canceled Netflix shows and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. uh, and then Marvel Studios under Kevin Feige will be running the Disney Plus shows. Uh, So that marked a pretty significant significant turning point and it was during this time that kevin feige was also working with amy pascal to get spider-man back from sony and work out that deal uh to where they could use him in the films and they did have a contingency plan that if they didn't get spider-man because they were filming civil war when this was happening yeah uh,
0: can i tell my fun civil war set visit story story so i did the set visit for civil war in atlanta And we talked to like pretty much everyone. We talked, uh, we talked to producers. We talked to directors. We talked to everyone and we kept like bringing up like, so when Spider-Man show? Like, well, we don't know spider Man's going to be in the movie. And like, cause they were in the middle of negotiations. So no one would even confirm like, is Spider-Man in the film or not? So at one point we're going to the costume tent. They're like, Oh, and here's, you know, here's the new armor we have for, for this character. And you know, Black Panther has this kind of armor and, Oh, you know, here's here's one of Bucky you know, one of the Winter Soldier's arms, you know, we're gonna have and oh and oh in the next ten is Spider-Man's costume. <laughs> 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 like you totally and like the publicist wasn't paying attention, and all of us just kind of lean in and are like, What can you tell us about that costume? He's like, Well, Tony Stark invented it, so we wanted to go with a little more higher tech look. <laughs> it looks a little different, has the small spider logo. <laughs> we're just like, ah, <laughs>
1: Um, it's always, so it always
0: happens that way on set visits. It's like some production person tells you the big thing that everyone else is trying to hide. It's hilarious.
1: Yeah. So they were able to get Spider-Man. Um, and they also had to renegotiate Downey's deal um, because they wanted to do Civil War. And that would be a co-starring role and not a cameo role. And his contract only called for like a couple more Avengers movies. I think it was for Avengers 3 and 4. Um, which are Infinity War and Endgame. And so they had to renegotiate to get him as the co star. And apparently, Ike Perlmutter was kind of trying to block that. He didn't want to pay. He didn't want to pay Robert Downey Jr., um, you know, what he would get paid as a co lead to do it. So he was like, just figure out a way to do it as a cameo. And Kevin Feige was like, that's not really how this works. So. That was, it's a very interesting. This was a very interesting time at Marvel um, uh, when this movie was coming about. Um, and, you know, the end result, it's a fine movie. It's not one I have the desire to revisit too often. And I do feel like a lot of the movies in the wake of it have just kind of made it inessential, um, I- except for an emotional point of view, I suppose. And we'll see it with Endgame if, you know, that pays off.
0: I mean, I think its biggest consequence is that the Avengers are over. Yeah. When infinity war starts, there are no yeah. Avengers. Um, yeah. There's just this big empty ass <laughs> compound in upstate New York. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, So then we move on to Dr. Strange, which. Whew. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Strange. I've got a lot of flack apparently for saying that this is the worst Marvel movie, um, but it is. So here's the <laughs> thing. Like, the, the problem with doctors, there are a lot of issues with Dr. Strange. Um, for starters, I don't, I like Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't think he was the most interest. I, I would have been far more interested to see if they have gotten Joaquin Phoenix who's they, who they originally wanted for the role. Um, but Cumberbatch is fine. The problem with Cumberbatch is that he is that same kind of snarky, cocky asshole genius who learns the value of humility. And becomes a better person in the process. Like, I get it. I've seen three Iron Man movies. I get it. Um, so he's not... And, and you can be like, well, that's how he is in the comics. I'm like, but the comics don't fucking matter. The comics do not matter. Like, how are we... It's it, it, By 2016, you should know the comics do not matter. Yeah. You can change things. But instead, they're like, no, he's, he's a cocky guy. And his hands get damaged. Just, and he gets... He's like, what am I going to do without my hands? That I still have, but are just all fucked up. And then, like, you're going to learn magic. But even that, they're not, like, they don't lean into the magic. Like, magic exists, but instead, they kind of do that cop-out thing where, like, in Thor, they had to do it to be, like, magic is just advanced technology. Just go with Asgard is a technologically advanced society. It's not actual magic. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. But then this is like magic exists, but then, you know, you have the ancient one Tilda Swinton being like, it's just attacking the code of the universe. Like, Oh God, just say it's magic. Just say it's magic. (laughs) I understand that it has to have rules and like, you know, you can't do everything like, but just say it's magic. And I don't know. I just feel like Dr. Strange is a very, it's a film that doesn't flow very well. It kind of stutters throughout. The char- the lead character isn't that interesting. The visuals are fine, I guess.
1: Yeah, this is one of those people who are like, man, it's so weird and psychedelic. No, it isn't! <laughs> watch
0: more movies! <laughs> it's fine. If you want to see something weird and psychedelic, go watch Mandy and get back to
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which they would never do. Uh yeah, I'm just I'm very bored by Doctor Strange. I did not like his character in this movie at all. I did like him a lot in Infinity War. Um, so I don't know what that says.
0: I think that says that first off that they didn't know how to write it
1: um for Doctor Strange. And then,
0: you know, to their credit, uh Marcus and McFeely, the screenwriters on the on uh Infinity War and Endgame, they had a clear take, which is that Doctor Strange is He is an asshole, but he's an asshole with a moral code who will do, who understands the bigger picture. Yeah. The problem is, is like, this is an origin story. So, Doctor Strange has to, like, learn a bunch of shit. And the problem is that there's just so many loose threads and just things that just feel like it feels like one of those screenplays that just gets, like, stacked on top of other screenplays and then it all just gets melded together. So, it doesn't have a clear vision. So, for instance, you have Rachel McAdams' character. Uh, Christine Palmer, Dr. Christine Palmer. And what is her purpose in the movie?
1: Like she heals him up a little bit and she tells him he's a bad guy.
0: Tells he him he he's a bad guy bad about it. And he feels a little bad. And then like, when he's like better at becoming a wizard, she's like, I'll heal you. And then he goes and like, that, that's it. Like she doesn't, it's <laughs> a, like, she's the female lead in the film and she barely has anything to do with it. And it's just there's just so much, and it all. It's a film that also feels like over stuff. Like we got to get the Mordo stuff in there, and Mordo's like, you know, no. At by the end, he's like, no more wizards. The Ancient One lied to us, and then, <laughs> and like Benedict <laughs> no Wong is magic. like, and Benedict Wong is like, it's fine. <laughs> like he just goes back to his life. Like, <laughs> it's oh god, it's just it's such a scattershot mess. The villain Mads Mikkelsen, who was originally going to play, uh. Malekith. Malekith. Ma- that's right. Malekith. He was going to yeah. play Malekith and he was, and then that didn't work out to a, to, because of scheduling reasons. So he now just do Hannibal instead. Yeah. And that then, so he does, He now he comes back to play an equally boring villain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're the same. Kaisal and Malekith are the same. Yeah. Um. This film has Michael Stuhlbarg in it.
0: <laughs> How? It's like, it? this is like the most amazing cast that has been assembled like it is. For, a, from, for like a, a intro film and it is a complete it is completely forgettable like i yep. don't think scott derrickson is all that as a director either i don't think he does anything here that's really that intro like anything interesting that's visually in this film was either cribbed from inception or it was from jet from jack kirby's comics nothing in here is like wow that's scott derrickson's real visual wonder he really, he really kept me on my toes. Like even Doctor Strange's powers with like the time stone, like that's just time rewinding. Like honestly, Infinity War does way more interesting things. Like when Doctor Strange like splits into a bunch of different people and throws like whips to like like that at <laughs> least is like ooh that's you have a unique power set here. Whereas in the Doctor Strange, it's like he has shields and whips and his cape is
1: powerful. <laughs> he has a powerful <laughs> cape and a time stone,
0: and I'm just. Uh, it's,
1: it's I will a, say I like the I like the finale part where the main action set piece plays in reverse. I think that's cool. I think, think it like, it
0: looks cool, and I like the the, the Dormammu stuff because yeah. in a in a film yeah. that knew what it wanted, it in a film that knew what it wanted to be, where and you can see this through line kind of the film like it keeps cropping up where Doctor Strange is a doctor and he sees his role as a doctor is to defeat death, and that is the purpose of a doctor. And the resolution for him is he has to learn to be not just okay with death, but his own death for infinity, if need be, in order to save everyone. And that's like, I don't know. I think that's like a kind of a neat thing. And like using the watch motif about breaking time, like that's that's not bad. But there's just so much, you know, Derritus, you know, debris surrounding this movie.
1: It's I mean, for me it's just it was just a bore. Um Yeah, it's the first one it, where
0: I'm like, I've I'm good with this character. I don't need more Doctor Strange movies.
1: It was, yeah. I felt exactly the same way. Now you no, know, now I like him after Infinity War. Um but it felt too familiar to Iron Man to me, uh, for one. Um way too familiar to Tony Stark in the way that they set him up, and the way that they had his big accident, and the way that he was an asshole and didn't change after the accident really. Um uh the way is Tony changed pretty significantly after his accident. Um I don't know. I was just really bored by this movie. It's not one that I have any. I mean, I've watched it twice now, I think, and I was just not. I'm just not really a fan. It's it's not like glaringly bad. It just feels kind of like a waste.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it twice as well, and I just it's a film that doesn't stick with me. I just it it sputters. It sputters along. It's not that interesting. They didn't find a, a strong take on the character, and. So I I mean they're gonna make Doctor Strange too. Hopefully that one will be better. Um yeah. now that they've gotten all the introductions out of the way. But we'll see.
1: Yeah. I'm uh I'm very curious to see what happens. Uh, I mean, when the shortlist came up of who's going to direct it, I was kind of pulling for uh one was Mark Andrews who directed the Pixar movie Brave, um or I guess co-directed uh, when they fired the lady director of Brave, um uh and Jonathan Levine uh who directed uh, Warm Bodies and Fifty Fifty. Um, yeah,
0: Jonathan Levine has been circling Marvel movies for a long time now.
1: Well and so were Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck. I forgot that they were on the short list for something so long ago. Uh I can't remember what it was. It was maybe like Thor or something like that. Mm. Um it was one of the earlier Marvel movies. Um and it didn't work out, but uh, you know, they eventually came back around uh with uh, Captain Marvel. So
0: hey, I gotta feel like Levine's gonna direct something one day. Like Yeah. They like I I think he was he was also on the short list for um uh Spider Man Homecoming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They Marvel clearly has a lot of meetings with a lot of filmmakers a lot of the times. And, you know, they just kind of wait until they find the right thing for the right person. Right.
0: So after Dr. Strange, you get to guardians of the galaxy volume two, which some people don't like, but I think is one of their best. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is one of their best movies because it does not care about anything other than itself. Like it, it cares about its characters and their relationship and that's it. It's not a plot driven film in the slightest. But it has a lot going on beneath the surface.
1: It's it's an incredibly substantial film. And I've gone back and forth on this movie. I really liked it when I first saw it. And then I got the Blu-ray of it and I watched it again and I was really let down. I was kind of bored. Um, my mind was kind of wandering and I was like, huh, I guess I don't really like this movie anymore. And then I watched it again uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, and now I kind of love it again again. Uh, it is very much a hangout movie. There is not really a plot. Um, there's kind of a villain, but it's not like he has some, uh, you know, master plan that he's uh, machinating the entire time. Um, he's really just, you know, Ego's just kind of luring Peter until he could plug him into his giant machine or whatever. Um, but it's not like, you know, he's going around the globe trying to do these things or there are these big battles. Uh, I liked kind of the fake out of the villains with the uh, Elizabeth de character and stuff. Um, but this, This most recent time I watched it, I was really struck by uh, how the film handles kind of crises of masculinity. You have Rocket, Yandu, Peter, and Ego. Are all working incredibly hard to mask their true emotions. Like they're trying to front, they're trying to be hard as a rock, they're trying to be really manly and masculine, and uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, do these things that they feel like they're supposed to be doing, while they're they're hiding their own hurt, their own pain, their own sadness, their own loneliness. Um, And it's kind of that struggle, I think, that that works out throughout the course of the film, and and when they can kind of embrace their emotions, and embrace, um, you know, uh, crying or like feeling sad or you know letting someone know that you feel lonely or that you feel hurt. um, I think those are pretty big things to be talking about in you know a space epic.
0: Yeah, in a tent in a tentpole superhero movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's no coincidence that Mantis' power is empathy.
0: Or like, that the at, villain is both ego-literally and figuratively.
1: Yes, yes. So I th- I, it's a movie that I think a lot of people dismissed because just on a pure surface plot level, it's like, oh, there's not much going on here. Like, this is kind of a boring movie. Nothing happens. Um, but Gunn, I think, was working on a much deeper, more emotional level. Whereas I think something like Black Panther is, is also incredibly substantial – um, and is dealing with like major issues, but it's dealing with them implicitly in a plot driven way. This is not a plot driven movie. And so you can't really, uh, you can't really go into it being like, all right, I'm excited to kind of follow along and, and, you know, figure things out and go along for the ride. Uh, you just kind of have to sit back. It's kind of like watching days to confused and just kind of like, uh, lose yourself into to the world of the characters.
0: Right. It's almost like it's, it's a Marvel film.
1: By way of James Gunn and Richard Linklater. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which and this is the this is the thing. So you can't like you can't say Captain Captain America: Civil War is like seven, but you can say Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two is like uh, Dazed and Confused or the Before Trilogy. Like it, it's very much like Gunn is operating on that level. He's oper- He's doing the things that you need to do to uh, make it feel uh, like those movies. Whereas Captain America Civil War is, is more concerned with being a superhero movie.
0: Right. And look, there's nothing wrong with being a superhero movie, but no. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is very much has some very strong themes and character development on its mind. And I think it's the, it's a stronger film for it. It's a more lasting film. And also this is on top of the film just being incredibly entertaining. Like, yeah. it's not like, I never feel like Guardians is preaching at the audience. Everything that's thematic about it comes through organically. No character has to stop and give a big speech about like, and this is why toxic masculinity is bad. Like, it's <laughs> all shown through action. Yeah. But it's a film, you know, that is just filled with a lot of great lines. And it, it just feels like after the first Guardians was a hit, Marvel said, okay, you know, James Gunn, go make even more of a movie that you want to make. You know,
1: it's a film that's comfortable in the giant climactic third act battle where tension is everything, and you want the audience on the edge of their seats. Is comfortable spending two minutes with the characters looking for some tape, yes, so they can tape down a button. (laughs) Exactly. It just and it just shows Rocket just kind of sitting there, just kind of waiting, and (laughs) Peter's flying around asking other people if they have any tape. And it's not like a it's not like a fifteen twenty second thing. It goes on. It's a lot. It's an extended gag. (laughs) It's really good uh, and really funny, uh, and I love it so much.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's a film. And like, the thing is, is, at the end of it, all the characters have pretty much grown and developed and found. You know, you don't, Even though it's not a plot-driven film, you feel that the characters are still changed at the end. They are not the same people they were at the beginning. And yeah. that, that, so you've been on a journey even if a lot of things did not, quote-unquote, happen. Um, it's a still a film that's transformative for the people involved, and I, I just like being on that journey. And it's a it's a and also this was the first Marvel film that they shot with the uh, Red Epic 4K, mm-hmm. and it shows. It is just yeah. a much more pleasant film to look at than something like Civil War.
1: Yeah, it looks great. The colors are are really. I mean, talk about psychedelic. The there's no kind of softening of the edges or anything here. Um, this one's just really, really going for it. Right.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to look at, it's, it's fun to watch, and yeah, I, for me, it is, it is a firmly top-five Marvel movie.
1: Yeah, and I'm very happy that Gunn is back to do Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm so happy about that. I can't imagine, uh, you know, them someone else to... Len to Wiseman's go. Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> no! Va- <laughs> no!
0: <laughs> All right. So, and then we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, which, you know, we talked a little, what? Good movie. It is a good movie. Um, we talked a little bit about the whole wrangling between, uh, Sony and Marvel. Do you want to just tell people, just to remind people like who owns what? (laughs) Okay. Because I think some people are like, well, why doesn't Venom show? Why can't they make Venom show up in a Marvel movie?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So here's the deal. So here's what happened. Uh, Amy Pascal, head of Sony at the time, uh, clearly like Spider-Man movies are the biggest thing ever. But Spider-Man movies going all the way up through the Amazing Spider-Man 2, each one successively made less money than the one before it. Uh, and Amazing Spider-Man 2 uh, was A pretty big bomb. And at that time, remember, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi had all these plans for this Amazing Spider-Man universe. They were going to do Sinister Six and all this other stuff. Um, And after Amazing Spider-Man 2, they just were like, never mind. Um, That's not happening. Uh, Unbeknownst to all of us, Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige had been talking behind closed doors for about a year, I think, um, about trying to find a way to come together. Uh, Amy's a really good producer. She knows well enough that Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios knows what they're doing. Uh, but Sony wasn't going to give up Spider-Man. So Sony Pictures licenses the Spider-Man character from Marvel Studios, which means they pay a fee, and in exchange for that fee, they get to use the character and make their own movies, and they make all the money from those movies. Um, The deal that they struck with Marvel Studios, uh, I believe, was a one, two, three, four, four or five-picture deal. Um, I guess two Avengers movies, two Spider-Man movies. Uh, So four-picture deal. Oh, and Civil War whatever (laughs) the deal that they struck was that marvel studios would come on board as the creative lead the creative producer of spider-man homecoming meaning they would help find the director they would develop the screenplay they would help cast it um you know they would essentially steer most of the creative aspects of the movie but sony would still have the overall say Sony had final say on casting sony had final um you know say on who the director was but again amy pascal very much trust kevin feige had been working with him for years um but so uh marvel studios gets to be a creative lead in exchange marvel gets to use spider-man in four or five uh marvel studios movies that are not uh spider or maybe uh maybe it's like three additional whatever so uh in exchange for coming on and helping produce spider-man homecoming Marvel Studios gets to use the Spider-Man character in Captain America Civil War and two Avengers movies. Marvel Studios does not get any money from these Spider-Man movies. So they're the creative producer, but the Spider-Man Homecoming and the upcoming sequel, Spider-Man Far From Home, are – For all intents and purposes, Sony Pictures films. So when those movies come out, when the box office numbers come in, Sony Pictures gets all of that box office. Marvel didn't want a piece of the box office. They didn't want any money. There's no money changing hands. They just wanted to be able to use the Spider-Man character in their movies and to be able to help kind of creatively steer this. So that's kind of the long and short of it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's very complicated. And and that's that's why... But but
0: that being said, you know, that's why they also needed a fresh start. Because if Marvel was the creative lead, you know, Andrew Garfield, bless him, I thought he was a good Spider-Man trapped in bad Spider-Man movies. Yes. So they had to restart. And something that they wanted to do was like, we really haven't seen a teenage Peter Parker. We've seen him briefly in high school, but that's not really part of his character. We don't know. And also... The way he is in high school is not how high schoolers actually are. Certainly not in 2017 when this movie was released or or when they were aiming to release Homecoming. So they went for something that was infused with a a John Hughes vibe, but also the point was let's make Spider-Man a teenager and really dive into that.
1: Also because all of the Marvel heroes were forty or fifty year old men. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> Which they, is I they, think
1: why they wanted Jessica Gordon Levitt for Ant Man. They wanted to diversify the age range.
0: Yes. Um, but you know, now I and so they they there was a you know the another round of Spider-Man casting. I mean, we've done the Spider-Man casting dance now. <laughs> so many times. Well, we did it with Amazing Spider-Man, and there were all those people, like mm-hmm. like Josh Hutcherson was in the mix, and uh, Logan Lerman, and then eventually became uh, Andrew Garfield. And this time around, it kind of came down to Asa Butterfield and Tom Holland, and Tom mm-hmm. Holland can do backflips. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, also, he's a really good actor, but he can also yeah. do backflips on command, yeah. um, which is useful when you're playing Spider-Man. And I, I got to say, like, it's Spider-Man Homecoming is, it's a lot of fun and it's not really the movie you expect it to be in some welcome ways. Like, it is the film that you expect it to be. And it's like, it's a teenage Peter Parker and he wants to be Spider-Man and he's eager to grow up and he wants to be an Avenger. And like, that's, you know, he's trying to hit all, you know, he he's trying to learn how to be Spider-Man. Um. But what's really fun and surprising is the way they handle the Vulture and his motivations and sort of, you know, what I think Homecoming is unique in a a way that is uh, delightfully ironic in that, as you said, Spider-Man Homecoming is fully owned by Sony. (laughs) And yet it is the rare Marvel film that actually looks at the fallout of living in the Marvel Universe other Marvel movies don't really have time for that to be like, they're too busy being telling a story to sort of be like, well, what is it like when the Avengers exist? And homecoming is like, this is what it looks like to everyone else. This is what it looks like to the people on the ground when there are superheroes in your world. And it's really fascinating to see that play out.
1: Yeah. I think it's a really fun movie. Uh, I think Tom Holland steals the show. Obviously John Watts does a, a pretty solid job directing it Uh, I really love the John Hughes vibe and and just kind of the the teen aspects of it I think are are the aspects that really stick out you know uh, uh, Peter Parker you know has to get homework done so he's very much unlike the other Marvel heroes in that way Uh, but I also really love the villain twist in it I mean every teenager's worst nightmare is your girlfriend's parents and so to make the bad guy the father of the girl that uh, Peter Parker uh, you know is taking to homecoming uh is just so smart. <laughs> so right. smart. But
0: he's also he is a very savvy villain in the sense of his entitlement. Um yeah. he like the way they play Vulture, and and again, this goes to it's okay to leave the comics behind. Because in the comics, Vulture's like an old man who flies around and he's like, ah, I'll get you, Spider-Man. <laughs> um, he has sometimes he like steals youth. I don't know. He's it's he's just a weird old guy that flies. And in in Homecoming, Vulture is basically an entitled white dude who believes that because richer white dudes have ripped him off, that entitles him to rip other people off and endanger their lives. And I think that's just a really savvy villain
1: for our times. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, turn them into dust. That too.
0: (laughs) Well, that's – I mean the whole thing about Infinity War. I mean I just – I love that. I mean – I think Thanos has become more a better character by virtue of people turning him into memes and using him on Twitter. (laughs) Like, I think Josh Brolin gives a good performance, no doubt, and we'll get into that. But at the end of the day, like, Thanos is like. Uh, I can't solve a resource crisis. So I'll just destroy <laughs> half the universe at <laughs> random. Like, it's like, oh my God, that's just, you're not a policy wonk. <laughs> you're just like, eh, <laughs> blah, kill half the universe and let the chips fall where they may. Like, and this is some like gene. he's not a genius. He's just, you know, just looking for a quick way. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Basically Thanos' solution to re- dwindling resources is to hit the universe with a hammer. <laughs> like, yeah. He's the kind of guy who fixes the TV by hitting it. Yes. We'll get into that next time. we we'll into <laughs> yes. that next time.
1: But um, yes, yeah, Spider-Man Homecoming was a success. I think it was the second highest uh, grossing Spider-Man movie or maybe the second most successful, something like that. Um, and it you know, rebooted the character successfully. There was some fatigue with Spider-Man already, and I think this uh, went a long way to getting people back on board. Um, so, yeah, I like Spider-Man Homecoming. I think it's really fun.
0: Yeah, I think I think it works really well, and uh, I'm excited for, for Far From Home.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, to answer, I didn't address the the Venom of it all. So the reason that Tom Holland does not cameo in Venom is because Venom is a Sony movie, but, and not Marvel Studios is not involved, not a creative producer. So if Tom Holland's Peter Parker walks into the frame with Tom Hardy, and Tom Holland's Peter Parker is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and exists in the realm of Infinity War and all that stuff— That automatically makes Tom Hardy's Venom part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just by virtue of the fact that they exist in the same world. Uh, And Marvel Studios is not going to let that happen because they have no creative say over what's going on with Venom or whatever. So they're not going to let this other character just kind of become or latch on to their uh, MCU, um, you know, just kind of just for the sake of Sony being like, hey, look, it's Spider-Man.
0: Right. So it's a little tricky, but Sony thinks that their solution is to just be like, well, we still have the Spider-Man license, so people will see a Venom movie, or they'll see a Morbius movie, or they'll see Black Cat and Silver Sable, even though that one isn't happening anymore. <laughs> you know, they'll they'll see the ancillary characters without Spider-Man. Yeah. And they're okay with it because, again, as you pointed out, they still reap the benefits of Spider-Man. No one took Spider-Man away from them. But the trade-off of Marvel overseeing the creative direction is that it limits the sort of Spider-Man universe they were aiming for. But to, you know, the, the thing is, is they were, they, they wanted to do that Spider-Man universe and they fucked it up. So, yes. you know, like, yeah, they could have done it, but they fucked it up. And, you know, maybe don't trust Avi Arad with all your shit. <laughs> Certainly not remember, with Spider-Man.
1: Remember Colm Fior or no, who was it? Uh, who did they cast as the, uh, as Norman Osborn? Chris Cooper chris cooper it was just like barely in the movie and was like all sickly for yep. no reason six and then felicity Jones. coming never god what a what, what a mess that was
0: and then green Goblin. a green goblin's like i want your blood peter and peter's like no <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can't have it
0: you can't have my blood <laughs> my blood what a shitty film <laughs> anyway uh, so, yeah, that's that's it for this installment of our, our MCU miniseries. Uh, we will be back next week discussing the final films leading up to the uh, leading up to Avengers Endgame. So for those keeping score at home, that means we'll be talking about Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp and Captain Marvel. So if you need to play any catch up, uh, try to listen to those before we we come back with you with the last episode. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter?
1: At Adam Chitwood.
0: And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.